Well, as we've been making our way through Revelation these last several weeks, uh, you may be saying, as we get to verse, or chapters 4 and 5, finally, right? Finally, we start seeing the really weird stuff, right? Did you catch those four beasts? And some of them, one's like a lion, one's like an ox, and they're full of eyes and all. Yes, we're getting there. Well, uh, I'm really excited. I think that these, especially chapters 4 and 5 in the book of Revelation, have probably inspired more praise songs than any other passage in the entirety of Scripture. I'm really excited because I think we get to see something really special, really spectacular about who God is and about the world that we live in in these particular chapters. Now, all of the chapters in the whole Bible are good. Some of them are harder to find out why they're good than others. But these are ones where I just think it feels like the glory of God is dripping off the page and right onto us as we read, even, when, even if we are a bit confused and even if we struggle to understand. Well, have you ever experienced in your life, maybe it's a, a really meaningful time of, of prayer, maybe it's at church, maybe it's at a retreat, maybe it's in a small group, maybe it's by yourself, but have you ever experienced a time where God's, his presence and his glory felt more tangible? You felt close to God. You felt uh, maybe your heart burning within you, so to speak. I think most of us, uh, if we've known Jesus any length of time, most of us have probably had at least an experience or two where we thought, oh, that was so good. That was spiritually satisfying. And every once in a while, we have uh, someone in the church who will come up to me and they'll say, oh, I really felt the Holy Spirit this morning. And then, which always kind of makes me wonder, like, so you don't feel him the rest of the time, okay. But uh, also will come up to me sometimes and say, uh, man, I really didn't feel anything. What went wrong this morning? And it's troubling to me, not, not because of the person who's coming to me, but because, yeah, what's, how come it does seem like sometimes God's right there and sometimes not? How, you know, why are there those highs? Should we be chasing? We kind of want to chase those spiritual highs and those spiritual experiences, don't we? We want to go to a church where the music is such, and by the way, the music was such this morning where it's like, oh, this is so great. Like God is, is here and I am praising him and I am worshiping him. And we want to be around people that when, when we're there, it feels like, oh, I'm being led into God's presence in one way or another. We want a, a preacher who can do that for us. We want friends who can do that for us. We want books that can do that for us. And we sort of end up chasing the experience, don't we? Or am I just preaching to myself this morning? No, I think it's really common, especially in our culture today. I need to feel it when I show up. I need to feel it. And I love feeling it. Feeling it's a good thing. So don't misunderstand me this morning. But what do we do? Why is feeling it not the most important thing? I'm going to propose to you that it's not, first of all. And I hope I can demonstrate to you from Revelation 4 and 5 why our experience in worship is much less important than simply offering worship to the one who is worthy. We kind of gave it away right there. Now, I'm going to walk through these passages sort of verse by verse, and I'm going to try and do it quickly so that we don't go on and on and on and on. Uh, I didn't divide these passages up into two different passages, two different weeks or something like that, because I can't. They belong together. They need to be preached together. 
And I think we'd do violence to them if we split them up any more than I have. So let me jump right in. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. So John, he has been having some sort of earthly experience, some sort of vision of Jesus Christ, but now he's actually going to see things from heaven's perspective. Not just his own perspective here on the earth, but what does it look like up in heaven while the churches are going through all that they're going through today? Because this comes right after the letters to the seven churches that John had Written And some of them are suffering, and some of them are struggling, and some of them are compromising. And all of these things, don't they kind of obscure our vision of God in one way or another? We are suffering. We say, God, where are you? Have you forgotten me? By the way, that's a good prayer. I don't want you to be afraid of that prayer when that's what's happening in your life. Or they might be saying, God, you know, we're really, we don't want to be faithful in this moment because it hurts too much to be faithful in this moment. Or maybe they're saying, you know, God, everything seems fine down here. I don't know what all the fuss is about in the first place. We're about to see, well, from God's perspective, what's actually happening in all of this. And the voice John had heard, uh, first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. By the way, after this, it's, it's not like way off in the future, but after what I've just showed you, after the letters I've just sent you, here's what's happening in heaven. Not distant future, but immediate future. And it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby, and there was an emeraldy sort of rainbow surrounding him. This uh, actually is a reference. Remember, we said everything in Revelation just about has an Old Testament reference somewhere. And here, Exodus 28, the, the decorations and the garments of the priest in the temple. Hebrews, the book of Hebrews tells us that uh, the tabernacle that God gave to Moses in such detail. Remember I said some passages of the scripture are a little more rewarding immediately to read. Some of the less rewarding ones, like back in Exodus, where it's like, and the tabernacle shall be this big and this deep, and you shall put these things in it, and the curtains shall be this long. Not as immediately rewarding as some of the other places in scripture. But if you read that, when you get here and it says God looks like a jasper, a ruby with an emerald rainbow, you'll see this is what the tabernacle was pointing forward to. It was, only, it was glorious and it was beautiful. In our church, it's, it's a beautiful church, but that beauty only points, only hints at the beauty that is God's by nature upon our sight and upon our experience and upon our understanding of him. And then you've got this rainbow, right? It encircles the throne. Well, God's about to announce judgment. But do you remember when uh, the rainbow first appears in Scripture? Is after the flood. And it's God's promise, never again will I destroy the earth in this way. Whatever judgment God gives, there will be mercy that comes with it. Praise God, or no one would stand. Surround, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, dressed in white with crowns of gold on their heads. And we're going to meet these guys several times, but I think what we're actually seeing is a heavenly representation of the church, of all of us, of the church as a whole, surrounding the throne. What are they going to do? They're going to worship God, and they're going to praise him. They're, going to, they're in his inner circle. 
right? They're sur- immediately surrounding the throne. Later on in, in chapter 5, it says, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands and thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, and they encircled the throne. And what else? The living creatures and the elders. The church is closer to God in that heavenly council, even than the angels. What an amazing thing. And then from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Again, judgment's coming. And in front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing, and these are the seven spirits of God, the whole spirit of God. Every time we we read seven, we should think all of it, everything. The letters to the seven churches, to all of the churches, even as they speak specifically to seven. Also in front of the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. We're going to see all, basically all of the bad things emerge out of the sea because it represents chaos and disorder and a world that is falling apart. This is where the beast later on in the book of Revelation is going to come from. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, good, the weird stuff. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. And the first one was like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with a face like a man, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And these represent for us all of the creation, all of the animal kingdom, right? The lion, the greatest of the wild animals. The ox, the most powerful of the domesticated animals. The person with the face like a man, you and I. And then the eagle, the the beast who look like an eagle in flight. And this because in the creation accounts, God actually separates out the, the air animals from the land animals and so on. And together, these four are meant to say that the whole earth is doing what? Well, they're shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And this is such an encouraging thing for us, I think. Because it often feels like the whole earth is not shouting, holy, 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 doesn't it? We look out at everything that's happening in humanity and because of humanity and it seems like it's all falling apart or it seems like no one loves God and worships God or it seems like God's not in control and yet the heavenly picture is all of creation with a unified voice shouting, holy, holy, holy. And maybe it's a little bit like, you know, in the winter when it gets really cold here, which is only, you know, really cold California style, but really cold, and the snow comes down to, you know, maybe a thousand feet or something like that. You know, there are days, we had one of these uh, this last year, there are days where the snow falls and it falls low, and, and, and the next morning everything is perfectly clear, right? And you, you get out and, and you see the mountains, and you go, wow. <laughs> That's amazing. That's unbelievable. It's like that, uh, that song, in This Is My Father's World, in the rustling grass I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. Well, well, the fact of the matter is, is that every time the grass rustles, we don't hear God speaking, do we? We don't hear him passing us. There are moments. It's like there is this, this symphony. It's, it's playing in a tone or at a volume that we, we usually can't hear. But every once in a while, just everything comes together perfectly in our hearts and in the world around us. And our hearts start singing along with that melody. And by the way, I don't think that's limited to only Christians. I think there are people who don't know Jesus who are nonetheless encountering him in his creation. And for a moment, their hearts sing in tune. And how quickly they fall back out of tune. 
And we lose that sight and we lose that vision. What we have to go on is what we remember from those moments and every other instead of that constant sound of the singing. Day and night, the four living creatures representing all of the created orders, they always say, holy, holy, holy. And for a few lucky moments, we catch them in the act. And whenever the living creatures give glory, here's the good news. Honor, when they give glory, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever, and they lay their crowns before the throne. See, there will come a day when the church will hear that song every moment, of every day, of every week, forever and ever and ever, and bow down in front of the th throne, offering the best parts of our lives to God in glory and worship and praise. Do you see anywhere in here where it says, you got to feel it? Or do you just see them doing it? Just doing it. Uh, Come thou fount of every blessing. Remember that song, that hymn? Come thou fount of every blessing. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. Let that be the prayer of our lives. You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. There's actually an idea here of uh, you created all things, and by your will they continue. Hebrews chapter 1, it says, Jesus Christ continually upholds the creation by the word of his power. God at all times has all of the creation in his arms, in his hands, singing that song. And if he were to ever step back and withdraw it, it would all disappear and all be gone. And yet he never does. This is the heavenly reality. Aren't there moments where we want to shake the dust off? I heard somebody tell me once, you know, I went to this church and, uh, and we were dressed pretty casually, you know, shorts and a t-shirt, and, and it seemed like kind of a fancy church, and people were giving us dirty looks, and I think it was because of, of the clothes that we were wearing. And when I got to the door on my way out, I shook the dust off my feet at all those people, because that's what Jesus said to do with people who won't accept the message, and it's, it's a symbol. It's a, an acted-out prophecy of God judge you, you big jerks. That's Ian's paraphrase. And aren't there moments when we want to do that in all sorts of different places? Like, oh, I give up on you. I don't want anything more to do with you. I'm so tired of you hurting me and hurting the people around you. I'm so tired of your inability to learn all of these things that you should have known by now. And yet, Jesus Christ, every moment of every day, is upholding not only the people we find easiest to love, but the people we find most difficult to love. This is the heavenly picture. It's uh, in the movie Galaxy Quest with Tim Allen, if you've seen this. Their, their slogan is, never give up, never surrender. And what if we followed Jesus like that? What if we determined to be good like that? John has seen a picture of the Father on his throne. And what could be more glorious than this? And yet in chapter 5, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides, which was unusual. 
in the ancient world. You usually only wrote on one side because uh, the way they put the papyrus together in a scroll was such that one side would have horizontal lines, easy to write on. Actually, they write this way in Hebrew. Uh, and the other side would be vertical lines, which are much harder to write on. But this scroll, there's so much that it contains. It's written on both sides. And it's sealed with seven seals. There's that number seven again. It is completely, utterly sealed up. But it also bears resemblance to an ancient document, an ancient Roman will, as a matter of fact, which would be a, a scroll or something like it, sealed with seven seals. That makes good sense here. God has a plan for his creation, sealed up in this scroll with seven seals. It is a plan, yes, to judge and to rescue and save because the rainbow encircles the throne. It's how God will bring his purposes to pass, finally. And this scroll, of course, is a symbol. And so the opening of it symbolizes that the end is beginning. It's all finally happening. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I think it's so interesting that it says, not even anyone under the earth. Like, were they asking Satan? Hey, Satan, can you do this? And I think, yeah, there is a sense. This is what we've always been striving for, to unlock the good future that God has for us. Even if we're in rebellion against him, we're looking for that good future that God has promised, even if we'd rather have it by any other hand. And yet no one can bring it to pass. Not a single person, not even the most powerful being we know outside of God and Jesus Christ, Satan himself. He can't bring the world to its end. And John wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or even to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a description of power and authority. The lion of the tribe of Judah. right? Lions, you know, we think of them roaring. We think of them hunting. We think of the, the power that's in their bodies. The root of David refers to the promised king from David's line who will rule, who will have authority. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And that picture makes a lot of sense to us. He is mighty. He has authority. He can do it. But what does John see? I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne right in the midst of God's authority and power, where the authority comes from, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. Jonathan Edwards, uh, a Congregationalist preacher in the 18th century, I believe, in America, he uh, ended his life as the president of Princeton, uh, although he only did that for about a year before he died. He was very unpopular with his congregation, but he wrote some of America's most famous sermons. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God was uh, actually required reading for me in high school, in a public school, of all things. But he also, I, I came across uh, the fact that he wrote a sermon on these two verses, verses 5 and 6, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb who was slain. I meant to actually bring a copy of that sermon in here with me this morning. It's like 25 pages long. 
and I wanted to show it to you because I've never preached 25 pages long to you, but also because these two verses he found to be so profound that he went on and on and on and on. How can this be true? The first image makes sense to us. Of course, the lion has power. Of course, the king has authority. But who would ever believe a slain lamb could bring all God's purposes to pass? What does that mean, that God uses a slain lamb to redeem and judge the world? What does it mean for how we live today? Because how often do we trust in power and authority instead of the way of the lamb and the way of the cross? Only one of those two actually brings about the good end that God intends for his people and for the world. The lamb went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. How amazing is that? Did anyone, anyone prayed yet today? Well, y'all did, because we, we prayed in church. Your prayers taken by the heavenly manifestation of the church to the Lamb, to the Father, in the innermost circle of his council of advisors. You know what? I am totally inadequate to this. Do you know what part of my, a big part of my prayer life goes like this? God, you don't need my advice. And I hesitate to give, to make any requests of you. You know what you're doing. And yet, God says, I am bringing your prayers into my heavenly council to be heard and discussed there. And he doesn't mean, so you better pray good prayers, right? But it's this act of mercy and love. It has more to do with the rainbow that surrounds the throne than anything else. God listens to his people. What a miracle. What a miracle. When we're driving... My kid's favorite question is, is this the right way? Right? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> like, I cannot. I just can't anymore. I don't know what I'm going to do the next time they ask that question. And aren't we asking God the same question all the time? And God still brings our prayers into that inner circle. He must love us. And they sang, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people, and nation. No one has ever had an impact on this world the way that you have, Lord Jesus Christ. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. 
And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. And they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they were saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing that song that's been playing since the beginning of creation, that one that we ask God to tune our hearts to sing, that one that we hear every once in a while snatches of and our hearts sing along with it, the one that when Jesus was coming into Jerusalem in the triumphal entry and the people were greeting him as king and saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of, of, the God, of God. And, and, and the Pharisees and the religious leaders came out and said, stop him from saying that because there are Romans who will hear and they'll kill all these rebels. And Jesus said, if they don't say it, the rocks, the rocks themselves will cry out. The song that all of creation was meant to sing. Worthy is the Lamb. And to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. Why do we worship? Why do we worship? How do we know we did a good job? That was a good worship this morning. It's maybe a bit crass to talk about it that way. It's not because we had the experience, folks. It's just not. That comes and that goes. And it will come sometimes in the lowest, least holy moments of our lives because God knows we need it. And it won't come sometimes in the holiest and most awesome moments of our lives. It's God's business when we can hear that song. And a day is coming when we'll hear it all the time. But that's God's business, not ours. Our business is worthy is the Lamb. He is worthy. See, that's what praise is about. Praise isn't about the songs that we sing. Praise isn't about the way we feel before, during, or after. Praise is all about God. And if we make it about those experiences, praise becomes all about us. Let God worry about that. Let God worry about warming your heart and setting it on fire. And you be faithful. We be faithful to show and to live and to proclaim and to celebrate that he is worthy like nobody else. Here's the last observation I want to make out of here. Remember at the end of chapter 4, they're praising God who sits on the throne, the obvious God, right? Not the lamb who was slain. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And everyone's fallen down and worshiping, and it's great. And the elders say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and continue. That's, that's pretty good. That's good worship. But when the Lamb appears, well, the Father got two choruses, one of them's three lines, one of them's uh, five lines. The lamb gets one, two, three choruses. And the first one is one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten lines in my Bible. The second one's four lines. The third one is five lines. 
Right? God is, yeah, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power. But here's the lamb. You are worthy to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And by the way, just in case you didn't hear it the first time, here's a second time. To you, the lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. He is worthy because he went to the cross, because he died in our place, because he is able to open the scroll and bring God's purposes to pass, because he said, I'm not going to do it the way anyone else in this world does it. I'm going to do it the way God sent me to do it. And so what good, brothers and sisters, is our faithful obedience to God when it seems like we're getting our butts kicked left, right, and center? It's good because it was good for Jesus. It's good because Jesus gets all the glory in heaven. It's good because when we live the way that Jesus lived, Jesus is the only one who opens the scroll, but we're living by what's inside. We're showing ourselves to really be God's people. And some people in the world will see that and they'll say, I want to be a part of that too. I see the one that they're testifying to and I'm beginning to hear the music. And I want to sing. And it matters because there are others who want to stand before God and say, you never showed yourself to me. I never knew who you were. Why did you make it so hard, God? And God will point to his people who live by the way of the Lamb. He'll say, I told you. You saw. Yeah, sometimes my people... Had a long way to go. But they were glimmers and snatches of that song and the lives that they lived. Folks, worthy is the lamb who was slain.